All right, well, good morning, everybody. Glad you could join us for Sunday worship. My name is Thomas. I'm part of Steph, who's here. Um, and yeah, just know, like, if, you're, if you've been coming to our church, we consider Sundays to be uh, the most significant day that our church gathers. It's the, I know we have community groups at midweek, or you guys might hang out afterwards, but Sunday is like the one day we gather together. We remember why we're a church, because uh, we, are, we call ourselves followers of Jesus. And so for anyone who is a member, that's why we gather to remind ourselves of our identity and to receive just the means of grace through the singing, through worship, through the ordinances. And if you're new, again, glad that you could join us here today. Um, as uh, Pastor Sam mentioned, the summer we are going to be doing some activities uh, or gatherings. One particularly is going to be our summer book club. And you're going to hear a lot more about this in the coming weeks. Uh, every week we'll talk about it. But I just want to briefly preview what type of topics we'll be going through. Um, so one book that we'll be going through is this book called All That's Good by Hannah Anderson. Uh, it's about a book about how do you discern and how can we make um, uh, wise choices in our lives. And we're actually going to be talking about that a lot today in today's message. But this is a great book for those of us who might need guidance of like big decisions that we're making. It's a great book to gather together and to read and to go through. Um, another book we want to do is this book called Garden City uh, by John Mark Comer. It's a book about work. So all of you who are working or all of you who are in between jobs or all of you looking for that. And so if you need kind of like a life-giving perspective. For all of you parents, uh, some of you who are parents, you went through this book with some of us before. But this is by far, in my opinion, the, the best book on parenting. It tells you not just like wisdom, but it gives you very practical applications of different life stages of your child and how to parent them well. And so for anyone, if, you have a, if you're pregnant or if you have a child that's like a year old, before that, your, your life is probably too crazy. But if your child's like a year old or so, you just need help navigating, highly, highly recommend reading this together with us. Next one was this book called Worthy. Uh, this book, I feel like for a lot of Christians, we either have a super conservative view of what it means to be a woman, it's someone who helps in the home and just takes care of the children, versus a super progressive view, which is like, you know, women need to like express themselves and show themselves, and it's really confusing to navigate through. And so this book called Worthy, it's actually a really uh, fresh idea of like, how should we as Christians view what it means to be a woman? And this is going to be, uh, I heard like, it's not just for sisters, but we'd love it if some of the men came to this study, so you could know the worth of a woman. So that'd be so awesome. And so that's going to be another book study that's there. Last book is this book called Confronting Christianity. I feel like for a lot of us here, whether you're exploring Christianity, or you might have been a Christian, but there's just like, man, you have some questions about Christianity. There are things in the Bible, there are things that Christians talk about, things like sexuality or gender or slavery, all these things that I feel like nobody really talks about. Like no one really goes there, but we want to go there in this topic here, in this study. So for anyone who's interested in that, uh, you know, again, all these different studies, different topics, it's going to be a group of like five to ten people just gather together, have an open dialogue, and we'd love for us to have these spaces for us to meet together. Sign-ups will be uh, sent shortly, but just want to give you a heads up, and we'll be sharing this a lot more as the weeks progress. Um, but for Sundays today, shifting gears a bit, we've been going through a sermon series. It's through the letter of James. And if you never read through the letter of James in the New Testament, we've been saying in our church that James, his purpose is not to explain what the gospel is, but his goal is to explain what does the gospel look like should it take root in your heart. And that's why the letter of James, if you read it, it's very topical because James wants you to have the gospel shape all of life. And he's hit. Today, what we're going to be going through is James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. It's a very short verse, and he talks about something that we don't talk a lot about in our culture today, and yet it is so needed to discuss. In our church, we believe that when God, uh, when we read the scriptures, God is alive and he's speaking. So if we could all rise together, and in our programs or in your Bibles, 
We'll be looking at James chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. James chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. So this is James writing in verse 13, and he writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is a reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, would your spirit move, stir in our hearts. May we hear your voice and may you speak to us the words that we need to hear today. And so, Lord, would your spirit move today and may we just be able to come away with a life-giving gathering together. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. There's a book that I heard about that I'm sure nobody else has really heard about. The only reason I heard about it was because um, they're making a movie out of it soon. It's called The Dice Man, Dice, like rolling dice. It was written in 1971. And it's a a novel that's about this psychologist who's really depressed. And the reason why he's depressed is because he feels like his life is really boring. It's monotonous. Think Fight Club, you know, how that person is really bored, so he just started fighting people. That's kind of like what this guy's going through. He's just really bored about life. And he begins to want to uh, change things around by making decisions based upon rolling a dice. And so he decides, should I go to work today or should I just book a vacation? And he rolls a dice, and that's what he decides to do. Should I, he's a psychologist, should I tell my patient today what I really think about them? He rolls a dice. Should I have an affair with my wife? Should I, have, should I cheat on her today? He rolls a dice. And what happens is the, the psychologist it, it accomplishes the goal where he's now living his life that's like, wow, my life is not boring anymore. He's just going all over the places, doing things he never would have normally done. And yet it leads to like this very self-destructive lifestyle. Some people say the author, even though it's a novel, he's actually, like, it's almost like a biography where he did it himself. And you just kind of see his life spiral out of control because of all these decisions with the dice. And most of us, we look at that going, dude, that's such a silly way to make choices in your life. Like who would roll a dice and bank on chance for you to make all these big decisions? And yet makes us pause and think, well, what makes you make your decisions? What is something that compels you to choose the big life choices of your life or the small ones? If you're like most Americans, you mostly, if you have to make a choice, you will depend upon your research. You'll go on Google, you go on Reddit, go on ChatGPT, you go on Yelp, restaurant to eat at and where to vacation to. It doesn't help you with the big questions of life. Like, should you marry this person? Is this career right for you? It's hard to have research tell you that. Some of you, you rely on intuition, where it's, you make decisions based on this, like, this inner gut feeling, your emotions that are there. And again, all of us do that to a certain extent, and yet we all know that our feelings and intuitions are not always reliable. Think about all the people you used to date back in the day. You had a good intuition about that person, and yet we were wrong. We were wrong by a lot of those situations. Some of you, you rely upon your morality. You're, you grew up in the church, and so you look on the Bible's commands or about what the pastor says. 
And yet there are a lot of situations that are morally ambiguous, where it's not right or wrong, it's kind of confusing. For example, parents, should we send our children to public schools or private schools? There's no right or wrong for that. But if you make it a right or wrong, you get into a lot of trouble. And so what happens is, what do you do to guide most of the decisions of your life? And if you don't want to make a mess of it, what we're actually told from a lot of ancient thought is you need something that a lot of us just do not talk about enough. Wisdom. You need wisdom in your life. There's a lot of different ways to describe wisdom. I like this definition that's kind of a full definition. He says it like this. Wisdom is living skillfully based on the reality of God in particular circumstances with humility. Now, I wish I could do a whole sermon series on just wisdom, and we plan to do a sermon series down the line on just the idea of wisdom, because again, a lot of us, we just don't think about it enough. But this is a nice foundation for us. Wisdom is not living rightly per se, but skillfully. You know how to live life, and it's based on reality, the, the way the world works, in your particular circumstance, with the type of humbleness and openness that's there. Wisdom, in other words, it's very different than knowledge. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is how to use that information. Knowledge is buying, looking at and figuring out what's the best car. Wisdom is deciding, is that the best car for you? Wisdom, it's different than intuition. It's not your feelings, but it's an wisdom. And wisdom, it's not want to date that person, but should you date that person? That's wisdom. And wisdom, it's not morality. It's not categories of, is this right or wrong? It is categories of, is this wise or foolish? And most of the decisions you make in your life, it's rarely right or wrong. It's always, is this a wise choice or is this a foolish choice? And so even though wisdom, we don't really talk about a lot today, just know the Bible regularly talks about wisdom. Because the Bible knows that we need wisdom. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's a category of books called the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the Song of Songs. And it's talking about how you need for all these different circumstances in your life, a lot of wisdom because life is complicated. It is not easy. It's not simple. And you can't just give pat answers. You need something called wisdom, which is more than knowledge, more than intuition, more than morality. That's why if you remember, for those of you who grew up in the church, remember when King Solomon, the only time in the Bible from my recollection where God goes up to somebody and goes, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And Solomon, he does not ask for wealth, for power, for fame, but what does he ask for? Wisdom. Because he sees the value that wisdom offers in this life. And that's why in the New Testament, James, he writes to the early church saying, if you really want to live according to the gospel, you need to know how to have wisdom. You need to understand what wisdom is. You need to recognize if you have wisdom in your life. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Do you know, are you someone who has wisdom in your life? Do you know how to recognize wisdom? Do you know when wisdom is missing in someone's life? And that's what we're going to talk about in four ways. Number one, we're going to talk about the presence of wisdom. Second, the struggle for wisdom. Third, the beauty of wisdom. And then lastly, the practice of wisdom. So the presence, the struggle, the beauty and the practice. First, the presence of wisdom. If I were to ask everybody in this room, hey, how can you tell who's smart? Who's the smartest person in this room? What would you be looking for? We'd say all the UCLA people stand up, all the Ivy League folks stand up, all those with high GPAs and high SAT scores or high IQ scores, and we just all compare, right? Because we have some type of understanding of, oh, those things 
are a measure or a test of how someone's intelligent. If I were to say who's the strongest person in this room, we say, all right, all you guys who do CrossFit and lift weights, stand up. All of you who have physique, stand up. All of you who, could, who ran marathons, stand up. Because again, we have some sense of what it is to make someone strong, how we can tell and recognize that. If I were to say, hey, who's wise? Who's somebody who has wisdom? What would you say is, oh, we should look for this in that person? How do you recognize wisdom? And that's what James is saying. James is calling out the congregations. Who's wise? Do you know what to look for, for when, to see if somebody has wisdom? And he tells us, this is what you should look for. Look at their conduct. Look at their life, he says. Look at verses, verse 13, what James writes again. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Now, there's a lot we could say here, but I want to focus on the idea of good conduct. James says, you want to see somebody who's wise, it's not their age, it's not their experience, it's not their IQ score, it's their good conduct. And that begs the question, well, what do you mean by that, James? Is it somebody who cleans afterwards? Is it somebody who just follows the rules? Is it somebody who listens to their parents? Like, what does good conduct mean? And James tells us uh, at the end of the verse. He goes on where he tells us that there are actually seven characteristics of good conduct that James has in mind. And he describes, this is, if you want to know what wisdom is, let me give you a list, and it's in verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Let me break that down very quickly for us so that we could get to understand what James is saying. If you want to find wisdom, who's pure here? He's not talking about sexual purity. By purity, he means, oh, who has like the, there's nothing mixed in. There's no other worldliness, but it's like you're purely devoted to the faith. That's, that's someone who's wise. Here's another answer he goes. Next, peace-loving. By peace-loving, he's not saying Enneagram 9, stand up. What he's saying is those of us who, when you have issues with somebody, you try to reconcile with them. Like you don't have a lot of people that you have drama with, like you're trying to fix it. That's someone who's wise. Third, he says there's somebody who's gentle. When you're able to absorb the weakness by complying, not a pushover, but what he's referring to is you're in a room and, when, and you have an opinion, but when someone tells you, hey, I think this, this, and this, you are open to hearing them. You are open to changing your mind. Oh, that's a wise person, according to James. Next, we have somebody who is full of mercy and good fruit. You use your resources for those who are in need. When you see somebody who's like that, James says wisdom. Next, we have unwavering. You are consistent. You are not always changing your loyalties all the time, your worldview, but you're just kind of principled. That's wise. And lastly, it's somebody without pretense. What you see is what you get. How the way you act in public is how you act in private. And James says, if you see that, that's a wise person. Now, this list, any ancient reader in the first century will look at that going, that's a weird list to describe somebody who's wise. Because back then, something like gentleness, like how is that wisdom? Gentleness is weakness. Like why would you write that, James? It was so counterintuitive to how the first century thinkers thought. And I would actually say if you think about it, it's counterintuitive to the way we think. If I told you find a mentor who could guide you in your life, who would you look for? I don't know if this would be the list. You would look for somebody who knows how to invest in stocks. Maybe somebody who owns property. Somebody who has a really, really uh, awesome portfolio, stock holds and so forth. They just know and they're savvy with their business. Because for a lot of us here, we value money, we value career. And so we look for people who tell us, oh, this is how you navigate through that. Wisdom. 
And yet notice these characteristics, what they all have in common. I know it could feel like an avalanche, like what's James saying? But they all have a common theme, which is they all have to do with people. It's the way you relate to people. Because you can't be gentle by yourself. Gentleness is seen in a relationship with somebody. Compliance is seen not by yourself, but when you're in a relationship with somebody. In other words, this is what James is saying. True wisdom is seen when you see somebody and all the decisions, they are shaped by the good of other people. They are seeking the good of other people because they recognize that people matter the most. That's somebody who's wise. And so to put it all together, how can you tell if you're living with wisdom, with understanding? Here's a clear test. Look at your relationships. Think about your relationships. Are they healthy? Are they solid? Are they good? That's how you tell if you're wise. Do you have healthy friendships in your life? Like, are your friendships, I know no one's perfect, but like, yeah, generally speaking, friendships are healthy. Or are you the type of person where, man, every person you meet seems crazy. Every friend group, just, it just changes every year. You have drama all the time. You have fallouts with your roommates. It's just always something bad happens with your friends. Is that your life? It may not be your fault, And yet, do you know how to navigate through those challenging situations? Or do you have a good reputation with your peers? Are you the type of person when we mention your name, all the peers go, dude, that person is solid. Like that person, like good person. I may not even know them, but I just know that person's a solid person. Are you that person where when your name gets mentioned, people go, oh, that guy. Oh man, that person. Because again, they just kind of come off a certain way. Are you a person when you're dating For some reason, all your dating relationships end like terribly. You always avoid them once you break up or you're you're in marriage and you're married. And again, marriage is okay. And yet at the same time, like there's always like long seasons of conflict. Again, not saying it's your fault. Who knows? You might be married to a crazy person. And yet James is saying, but if your relationships are constantly broken, if they're constantly something's going off, it might reveal you need to grow in wisdom. You need to grow in knowing how to navigate that situation. I've told this story before, but let me say it again. Uh, Early in marriage, whenever my wife and I try to resolve our fights, it was always the most unproductive conversations because this is how it would go. Something would happen. We're both mad at each other. One of us breaks the ice, go, let's talk about our problem. We'd sit down and I would share going, this is how you hurt me. Boom, 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 boom. And my wife goes, well, this is how you hurt me. Boom, 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 boom. And I reply, well, this is why I did that. And we just keep going. We're like two lawyers who should apologize first. That's basically what we were doing. And that was kind of the whole way our early marriage began. And sometimes we still do that. And yet now that we've been married for about over 11 years, I now know how to resolve our fights. Like I know when I'm thinking soberly, like, okay, If we want to have a productive conversation, this is how it should go. It should not be me going, this is how you hurt me. No, 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 no. The way it should go is this. Hey, hun, how did I hurt you? Tell me. I actually want to know. Like, like, what what did I do to to hurt you? Because I didn't know what I did. And when she shares, and after she shares, she tells me, hey, hun, how did I hurt you? And what happens when that takes place is, like, we're putting our ego aside We're really trying to understand each other's wounds. 
It's not about who's right and who's wrong, but it's about the other person. And so when you look at those two scenarios, what's going on? That first scenario, it's driven by principle. The early marriage days is driven by like, look what you did to me. It's driven by justice. It's driven by offense. It's driven by, hey, you need to hear me out. Versus the second scenario, it's driven by wisdom. It's about the person. Forget, it's not mainly about like what happened, but it's about, well, what, were you, what about you? Let me think about you. And James is saying, if you want to see a marriage that's thriving, wisdom needs to be accompanying it. And I think all of us who are married, you guys know what I'm talking about. You guys know, man, that's the wrong way to approach a fight. <laughs> Let me tell you what you did wrong. It's, no, you're thinking about the other person. And so for those of us here, do you have wisdom in your life? Do you have wisdom in, the air, in relationships? Does it show up in your life? You know, I love Michael Jordan. I think Michael Jordan is the goat. He is amazing. He's awesome at basketball. But if you ever look about his life, like there's no wisdom there. All his relationships, look at Scottie Pippen. Like, look at the, what's going on there. There's a lot of brokenness that's going on. And James would say, if you're somebody in your life where you could think all you want that you're wise, but if you have broken, if your relationships, you're not displaying this type of characteristics there, don't fool yourself. Because wisdom, it is primarily seen in the relationships that you have. And that's why it's so hard. It is so hard to find wise people because we struggle, and at least to the second point, to struggle with wisdom. Why do we struggle with wisdom? James tells us it's because we're driven by a different type of wisdom. Verse 14, look what James writes. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He says, if you see these two things in your life, watch out. Bitter envy, he describes in verse 14. That literally means like this harsh zeal. What it means is like you have like this passion for wanting what other people want. You visit someone's house, a friend's house. You go, oh my gosh, they have a four bedroom home. It's super nice. And they make this much income in order to pay for it. I need that for my life. And that becomes your driven goal because you really care about having a nice property that's there. That's, that's what James is talking about, this bitter enviness that's there. Or he says, if you see selfish ambition, this is a word that's commonly used in the Greek for politicians. And what do politicians do? Vote for me. Take upon my policies. I'm the best. They're people who would assert themselves. And James says, when you have somebody who is always trying to live a certain way because they see the way other people live, and you're always trying to assert yourself, what you have is what he calls a wisdom from below. You are not wise. You might look wise to the world, but you are not wise in God's eyes. In fact, he says in verse 15 a little more sharply, look what he says. He says, quote, such wisdom does not come down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly meaning all you're caring about are the things of this world. Unspiritual meaning you don't even consider God. It's all about the human body here. And demonic, not meaning satanic where you worship Satan and fire, but what is Satan like? What's the demons like in the Bible? Pride. You're filled with pride. John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York. He says, the reason why most of us are navigated by this type of wisdom is because God is out of the equation. When God is out of the equation, this becomes your foundation of life. Number one is this, yourself, you become God. You decide what's right for you because God is not God, you are God. Second, your body becomes your soul. Whatever you feel, that is true to you because your body tells you. And third, time becomes eternity. Whatever you are doing now, it has eternal implications in your mind because this is next slide. Wisdom is defined by yourself because you are God. 
It is also navigated by the desires of your body, what you feel, that's what you want to do. And it is all in the present moment, right here, right now. It's all about me. It's what I can get right now. And a lot of us, that's how we make decisions. That's how you choose how to navigate your life. And we talked about this before, what makes that chaotic and what makes it lead to places that we don't want to go is because your strongest desires, they are so strong, but they are not your deepest desires. But when you're only living by your stronger desires, what ends up happening is, James says, there becomes deterioration. It leads to places you don't want to go. And he summarizes it in verse 16. Look what James says. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. Another way to put it is when you are only thinking about yourself, and how to advance yourself, you're not thinking about other people, watch out. Disorder happens everywhere. Back in college, I remember I met friends at the dormitories and we all got along going, dude, we should all live together in the same apartment. Let's do it. So our sophomore year in college, we all lived together. And I imagine like this awesome life where we would hang out late at night, we'd have fun, we'd invite people over. But if you visited my apartment my second year in college, oh my goodness, You would think we're like homeless people living in a home. Like, it was crazy. You walk in, the living room was all sticky. You would see, like, food and, like, dishes everywhere. You would have this weird odor or smell in the living room, and we don't know where it came from. And yet, when you walked into our bedroom, super clean. Why? Because we took care of ourselves. My room is clean. My bed is clean. But that common area with other people, not my concern. I see a dish in the kitchen. That's not my dish. You just leave it alone. And what happens? It becomes this unlivable space. And a lot of people, that's your experience in college. When you room with other people, when no one cares about the other person, you're just watching out for yourself. Your bedroom is immaculate, but the common area, it becomes chaos. And James is saying that happens in all types of relationships and communities. When you're guided by a wisdom that's about yourself, your selfish ambition, what you want, Good luck having a relationship with that type of mindset. Good luck forming a community with that type of mindset. It becomes chaotic, where there's a lot of conflict that takes place. Because this is the type of wisdom in the world. And this is something you see in the world. This is something we see in our workplaces, and our living spaces. But here's the thing. Uh, James, he's not critiquing the world, because the world is the world. The bigger critique is when this type of wisdom comes into the church. When this is the type of wisdom that the church, which is trying to be this community, when we are infected with the wisdom of the world, what happens is you're going to see chaos happen in a place that there's not supposed to be chaos. And that's what's happening with James. The reason why James is even talking about this is in the next verse of chapter 4, verse 1, this is what's happening in the churches. Chapter 4, verse 1, James says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war with you? We'll talk about this more next week. But James is saying, I've been hearing at the church that there's a lot of issues you guys have. There's clearly some type of wisdom that's guiding you that's not from above, but it's from below. And I think for a lot of us, if you went to church, you can could, you could understand this. You know, most people, when you experience hurt in the church, the reason why is because the church community, they're practicing a, a weird type of wisdom, a wisdom of the world. And that's why most of us, we have pain. I mean, if for anyone here, whether you've been to church once or you grew up in the church, how many of you have experienced a lot of your deep wounds from people in the church. I know for some of you, you might experience a church culture where the loudest and the most aggressive people were all the leaders of the church. I grew up in a time that was really wonky. I feel like church history will look back at the early 2000s as this weird decade 
where a lot of church planners, meaning new churches were being started, and the way people chose who's a good church planner, who's a good pastor, it's the loudest and the most aggressive and the most gifted and the people who could get a large crowd. You should be a pastor. That was like the the mentality, the ethos of a lot of churches back in the early 2000s. So what's happening now? The result of that is we are facing the consequences. Pastors become narcissistic, whose gifts far surpass their character, And what they end up doing, they build a church. It's a big church. And yet people are being abused. People are being used up for service. And that's how we view church. We view that as normal. What's going on there? That's worldly wisdom. Context where, you know, you experience entering into a church community. Some of you, that might be a little removed for you, but you come from a context where, you know, you experience a church culture where it's all about those who lead and those who serve and those who have a title That's what matters the most. That's what you want. I've been part of campus ministries where, man, I remember at the end of the school year, it was all about who's going to be president? Who's going to be the president of this campus ministry? Who's going to be on our, our leadership core? Ooh, I wonder. Oh, not me, not me. Not me, but yes, please, please me. But not me, you know, I hope not me because that's so much pressure. But then when you see the names come out, dude, there's like mad drama that happens. Like that person is the president? What in the world? I'm his roommate. He shouldn't be president. Oh my gosh, they're on core? Why aren't I on core? And what's up happening is you have this weird like spirit that goes on that kept this ministry where there's a lot of hurt and jealousy and a lot of haters going, this club sucks because they weren't asked to be leaders. What's going on there? Or for some of us, we experience, it's not really about leadership, but it's about the social circles. You go into a church and you want to, just, you just want a place to belong. And you look around and you don't know where you belong because you don't know who your social group is, or you, you do know where you belong, you're part of a social group and that's all you care about. And so what happens now is there's like a church where you just know there's these social circles that are there, they're impenetrable because they become like these cliques. You, have, you see people on Insta story going, how come they're hanging out and I'm not invited and there's hurt feelings that are there. We, we don't want to welcome people because you want to be welcomed and that ends up being the church and we get hurt by that. Or some of you experience a church culture where all is good until somebody fights. All is good until somebody in your friend group breaks up and now it becomes weird. All is good until there's some type of broken friendship that happens because you went to an event and something weird happened and now everyone's ostracizing that person. Or you go and there's like a falling out because something personal happened and now the pastors, we can't put you in the same community groups because there's drama, so we have to separate everybody. What's going on when that happens? James will look at that going, dude, I don't know what's going on, but that is a worldly wisdom. We have brought a worldly wisdom into the one space where godly wisdom is supposed to be present. And that's why so many of us, church is not a place of healing, it's a place of hurt. It amplifies the pain that a lot of us experience in the world. Because again, the world damages people a lot. And before we judge our past or other people who treat us this way, let's ask a question for us. What motivates you to be part of this community? What is your approach when you're part of this church community? Do you come with the wisdom from the world? You come thinking, man, who's going to welcome me? Man, I hope someone includes me. Man, this is, I hope somebody notices me as a leader. I hope somebody appreciates me for all that I do. Is that the driving ethos, the driving posture that you have? Or do you come here going, you know, this is a place where I'm actually supposed to care for others? This is a space where I'm supposed to come and consider the needs of others? That's going to be the difference between a church filled with wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Could you imagine a church where people, like, you just sense, like, man, they don't care about titles. They don't care about, hey, which group I'm part. They just want to care for people. 
Can you imagine a group like that? You know, I've seen that one time on a reality show. You guys, I mentioned this before, Physical 100. You guys see that show, right? Physical 100, it's so amazing when you see it's a group of people, the, all these buff people doing these competitions. And the most amazing thing is when someone wins, everybody claps for them. Like, oh my gosh, you're amazing that you won that competition. Even those who are competing, they're like, Mal, you beat me, good job. They're all like, hey, there's this competition, who should do it? Well, I'm really good at that, but you might be better, so you do it. And they just let them do it. And we always joke, some of us, we go, dude, this could never happen in America. In America, it would never happen. Everyone kind of like fights each other. But for some reason, like, man, Asians, like, they have like this communal thing that just happens, like where it just comes out naturally. And I look at them, I'm just like, wow, that's a, that's a community where for some reason in that moment, they just don't care about themselves. They just want the other person to do well. And they have all one thing in common. They're all buff. They're all like super yoked. And I guess for them, they're like, they understand the, the sweat and hardships that it goes through to earn those muscles. So they're just like in it together. And that's like the church. We have one thing in common. It's Jesus Christ. All of us are united simply because of Christ. And when that becomes real to you, and you understand the sacrifice that it took for us to be united in this way, that's when something interesting happens in the community where it's not about us and what we can experience and what we could have, but it's about others. It's about others. And when you see a community like that, you know what community that looks like, what, it, what you could describe it as? James tells us this is a beautiful community. And that leads to the third point, the beauty of wisdom. You know, uh, if we go back to the characteristics, next slide. James says, wisdom is pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruit, unwavering, without pretense. This seems like a random group of adjectives that you could almost describe like anything. But James particularly chooses this. Oh, go back. He chooses this. um, And he does it for a reason. It's not arbitrary. Because back then, if you were to come and hear this description of wisdom, you wouldn't read it like we are doing, because back then nobody read. It was a, it was a illiterate culture. You would hear this, and you wouldn't hear it in English, but you hear it in the Greek, and this is what the Greek looks like. All the Greek is like this, and notice in the Greek what every single letter begins with. Next slide. It's either an A or an E. Ah, eh, ah, eh. And alliteration. And when you hear it, it comes off like this beautiful poem of what wisdom is. Wisdom is this. And when you hear that, there is this beautiful poetic rhythm that describes wisdom because James is trying to say wisdom is actually beautiful. And if you adopt wisdom in your life, your life becomes beautiful. There is a beautiful rhythmic pattern that just comes in your life when your life is filled with pureness, gentleness, compliance, because it leads to something. It leads to verse 18, the whole purpose of what wisdom is supposed to do. Verse 18, look what James says. And the fruit of righteousness, it's sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This word peace, it's a huge word in the Bible. In the Hebrew, it's shalom. The whole theme of the Bible is that God created the world as a place of shalom, where you have peace with God, peace with each other, peace with yourself, peace with creation, Sin, though, caused a disruption of that, where we are now alienated from all those relationships. But God, when we practice wisdom, God tells us, James tells us that you're experiencing shalom now. You're experiencing peace because you're caring for the things that matter most, those made in the image of God. And that's why at funerals, if you notice that when people give eulogies, 
Nobody ever gives a eulogy over a person and says, you know, man, this person, you know how much money this person had? This guy had so much money. Nor do they say, you know, do you see his body? How buff he was? Man, that guy worked out so hard. You never hear that eulogies. What do you hear? This person was a great father. This person was an amazing daughter. This person treated everybody with respect. This person was like the best friend. Can we know at the end what matters most? It's the way you treat people. That's the good life. Tim Keller, some of you know, he, he's a pastor in New York. He passed away two weeks ago. Man, devastated me. People ask me how my trip to DC was. Horrible, because Tim Keller passed away while I was in DC. I heard the news. And it just like messed me up because, man, of all the living pastors living right now, like he was my guy. Like he was the guy that I was like, dude, I respect him. Like he shaped the way I view Christianity because Keller, his sermons were amazing. His books were life-changing and his intellect was just like, like very unique. And that's where it was so surprising when you saw all these tributes given to Tim Keller. Nobody really talked about his books. No one talked about his sermons or intellect. They all talked about, you know, I was his intern and he treated me in such a dignifying way that I'll never forget. Hear from congregation members going, Tim Keller made time for me in the midst of my sorrows. It wasn't his sermons, I remember. It was the way he talked to me. People would write about how they messaged him and he messaged them back and they had this type of communication going on that was really meaningful to them. Because we know that when you live a life that's based upon loving other people, lifting them up, you're living a life of shalom, of peace, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful life. And that's why the Bible describes the person who epitomizes wisdom, it's not Tim Keller, nor is it you and, my, you and me, but it describes an interesting phrase in 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, Paul says this, it is him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God. If living a wise life leads to peace with others, is there anybody who is more wise than Jesus? Jesus lived by purity, by peace-loving, with a gentleness, compliance, full of mercy, and unwavering, without pretense type of wisdom. And that led him to the cross for you and I, so that you and I can experience peace with God, peace with each other, peace for ourselves, and one day, peace with all of creation. Wisdom is beautiful, the way the Bible describes wisdom. And that leads to the last point, how do we practice wisdom how can we grow in wisdom if we don't have it? And let me just mention very briefly four, four uh, practices for us to consider. Number one is this. Uh, if you don't have wisdom, ask for wisdom. There's a type of wisdom that the Bible is describing. It's not something you could read, and that's how you get wisdom. It's not something you could research. It's something that God gives to you. And James tells us if you ask God for it, he will give you this wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 5, James says this. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. I know you see that you go, okay, let's just pray for it. But let me tell you, um, I, I was talking to a couple of guys that I share life with, and I was telling them, I was asking a question. I was saying, hey, do you guys, um, do you ever experience God? And they're like, what do you mean by that? I'm like, like about. I was like, no, no, no like, like, think, like, do you meet people who go, hey, I actually felt God was in this room with me. And I could tell some of them, like one person, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was telling him, I was like, hey, you, I, I, I didn't either. But recently, as I read the scriptures, I'm like so convinced. If you want to experience God's presence and you go to him, like God will, he, you experience his presence. Like I really believe that. Like if you want to experience God's presence and you go to him, you will experience his presence. But here's the question. Do you really want to experience it? Like do you really want to? 
And that's usually the problem, right? We say we want to, but you want other things. Because if you really wanted to experience God's presence, you wouldn't just try once. You keep going to him. Keep going to him. Keep asking. Let me feel your presence here. And I think that's the same with wisdom. Some of you, you think, hey, I want to I experience wisdom, but not really. But if, I promise, James promises, if you really, really want to experience wisdom, ask him for it. And you want to just ask once if you really want to. Keep going to God. See what happens. Grow in wisdom this way. Because this is a wisdom you cannot learn. It's a wisdom that you receive. Ask for wisdom. Secondly, if you want to experience, to practice wisdom, to grow in wisdom, prioritize people. My son, he, he collects Pokemon cards. If you ever meet him, you'll know that's, yeah, that's my son. That's the guy who talks about Pokemon cards. And I remember one day I bought him this card pack, this protector, you know, those plastic things where you put the cards in. And I said, hey, put your cards in here. I remember when he put the cards in there, I opened it. It was like all the most generic Pokemon cards. He just put it like in random order. I'm like, no, like that's not what you're supposed to do. You get, like that's not wisdom. Like you get like the... <laughs> Nice cards, like your favorite cards, the best cards, and you put them in the plastics because those are most important. That's what has priority amongst your card set. And that's what I think James is trying to tell us. That's, that's wisdom. Do you know what's the most important thing in your life is? It's the people who God places in your life. They are the most important things. More than your work, more than your exercise, more than any type of hobby, it is the people who are most important. And you live by wisdom when you are prioritizing them, when you're making space for them, when you care about making peace with your spouse when the things are kind of weird. That's really important. That's wisdom. When you're somebody where you are trying to struggle, reconciling with a friend who you're distant with, dude, that is the way of the world when you distance yourself from them. It is wisdom when you try to draw near to them. It is wisdom when you come together with the church community, not just doing the programs, but meeting people. That's wisdom. Prioritize people in your life, and that's a life filled with a lot of wisdom in James' eyes. Third, be around wise people. So, so, social psychologists, they talk about this thing called social contagion. Social contagion is this idea that you can spread. It's not it's like a disease, but you're spreading your emotions, your behaviors, your thoughts. Here's a sample of that. If I yawned right now, few of you would begin to yawn. Why? Because of social contagion. We just imitate the things that we see. We imitate the people that we're around. That's why a lot of us here, your temperament is the way it is. You dress the way you do. Your hobbies are the way they are. Not because you're a unique individual, but because you're surrounded by people. People with that type of hobby. People with that type of temperament. One person says that you are the sum of the five closest people around you. The five people you spend the most time with, just combine them together and that's you. And so is there anybody around you that's wise? Is everyone around you just funny? They're just outgoing people. That's awesome but are any of them wise? Surround yourself with wise people. Those of you who have marriages, you're like, man, I don't know what to do with my marriage. Dude, find someone who you respect going, dude, this person is wise in their marriage. This person is wise in their family relationships. This person is wise in how they navigate whatever you don't know how to navigate. Let them be one in your five for a season. They don't have to be your best friend. You're just spending a lot of time with them. Surround yourself with wise people. And that leads, lastly, be with Jesus. If you are the sum of the five people closest to you, then it would do you well to make sure Jesus is one of those, if not the main one. Because Jesus is wisdom personified. Make sure he is influencing you. Make sure he has a voice in your life that's louder than your friends, louder than your parents, louder than your culture. Because when you are around Jesus, you experience wisdom. And so as, we, as I invite the praise team up, can we take a moment to do that first practice?
asking for wisdom. Again, I'm not sure some of you, you may not, you want wisdom, but you don't really know how to ask or there's relationships in your life that are broken. There are things that you don't know how to navigate through. And this is where you might need wisdom. Wisdom from God to see things straight. Wisdom to understand what the priority is in this situation. Wisdom that's received, not simply something that you discover or earn, but wisdom that God gives. And so whatever space you're at, whatever comes to mind, can we just let the spirit move and ask for us to really be a people who could come together, could come before the Lord, asking and receiving and living by wisdom from above. So we take a moment to pray for that and then I'll close for us as a church.